Now, friends, we've come to a very interesting chapter here, chapter 2 of this very wonderful little epistle of Colossians. And in the first section, the first 15 verses, you have Christ is the answer to philosophy. And then we have, as we move on down in the chapter, we come to Christ is the answer to ritual from verses 16 through 23. Now, the answer to philosophy is for the head. The answer of ritual is to the heart. So that, as we've made the statement at the beginning, that Christianity has always been in the danger of sailing between Scylla and Charybdis. That's the two points that Aeneas had to put his boat through in Virgil's Aeneas, you will recall. And it was very difficult. On one side, there was a danger. The other side, there was a grave danger. And Christianity, on one extreme, is always in danger of evaporating into a philosophy. There is a danger of it becoming nothing in the world but just steam. Then, on the other hand, there is a danger of it freezing into a form. That is, a ritual. And that is a grave danger. You see, the Lord Jesus didn't say, I'm the steam of life. He didn't say that I'm the ice of life. He said, I'm the water of life. And therefore, we need to guard against following the line of philosophy or following the line of ritual today. Christianity is Christ. Now, there were in the Colossian church five errors that endangered the Colossian church that he's going to deal with in this chapter. The first one is enticing words, verses 4 through 7. Then there was the danger of philosophy, verses 8 through 13. Then there was the danger of legality, verses 14 through 17. Then the danger of mysticism, verses 18 and 19. And then asceticism, verses 20 to 23. And these are the dangers I would say today. I think that most of us could sit down and take this chapter, go through it, and make an inventory of our spiritual life to see which direction we're going, see whether we may have slipped into one of these systems. And a great many, even so-called Bible believers, have slipped into one or two of these systems here. Now I'm going to begin to read here chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians. He says, "...for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh." Now, Laodicea was right near Colossae. I had been to Laodicea, but not to Colossae. But I could stand on the high point and look across that Lycus Valley and see along by the side of the mountain there by the gates of Phrygia that leads into the Orient and into the east. And that was the ruins of Colossae. And it was a great city, but it was not really nearly as great as Laodicea. And that's one of the seven cities, you remember, that John wrote to. That was the lukewarm place. So that the danger here and that which caused great conflict 
in the heart of the apostle Paul. And by the way, that word conflict is our word agony. And MacPhail calls it prayer agony. We need a lot of agonizing in prayer, I think. And this is prayer agony. And Paul saw that there was a grave danger. This is about a hundred miles inland from ancient Ephesus, Ismir today, or ancient Smyrna. And it's an area, apparently, that when Paul came through that area, and he did twice, he did not come that particular direction, because even when he attempted on his second missionary journey to go down into Asia, the Spirit of God forbade him. So he turned and took the northern route, and so when he came the third time overland walking, he apparently, not knowing the southern route, he did know the northern route, he took that So, apparently, he never was in Colossae, and he never was in Laodicea. And he mentions that as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, he has great agony for them, because they were in danger of going in one or two directions here. And that's the danger of the church today. And that explains, as it did later on in Laodicea, their lukewarm condition that they had lost sight of the person of Christ, because Christ is the answer to the head of man. He's the answer to the heart of man. Now, will you notice, as we move along into this section, when he says, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, I think it makes it very obvious that Paul had not been to Colossae, or that they had so many new believers there that had come in, since he was there, that they hadn't seen his face. But I think that's highly unlikely. Now, he mentions here in verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted. Now, heart here indicates the entire inner man. That means the whole propulsive nature of man. That's our humanity. That their hearts, their humanity, their persons might be comforted. And the word here actually means knit together and might be comforted, being knit together in love. And that means compacted. Love just draw them together. And after all, the thing that unites a church is not gifts or even what we call today spirituality. The thing that unites believers is love, friends. It's the cement that holds us together. It's Elmer's glue, if you please. Now he says here, "...being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding." Full assurance is a very interesting word. It means under full sail. It means that believers should be moving along, moving along spiritually, moving along for God. And he speaks of that here the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And I grant that that's a rather awkward expression here. And I very frankly feel like probably the better way of translating this here at this particular place would be the mystery of God, even of the Father and of Christ. Or the easier way is the mystery of God, even Christ. And I think that probably is correct. Now, what is the mystery of God, even Christ? Well, today, the mystery is the church. 
comfort was not revealed in the Old Testament. God was going to save Gentiles. He made that clear in the Old Testament, and he did save them. But at the beginning of the day of Pentecost, God began a new thing, calling out a group of people into the body of believers, baptized into the body of believers. And that is what he means over in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. You see, Christ had a physical body when he was here on this earth. He has a spiritual body down here today, and that's the body of believers that have trusted him. And it's called Christ. He could say to Saul of Tarsus, Why are you persecuting me? I'm persecuting him personally. Why? The church is Christ. belongs to him. We've been baptized into him. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So you see, this is what brings the unity in the church. And we're told today not to make a unity. You can't join an organization and expect that organization to bring about church unity. The Holy Spirit's already done that. He puts all believers in one body, and we're told to keep the unity of the Spirit. problem today is that we're not keeping the unity of the Spirit. Now he says, "...in whom," and that's Christ, "...are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now, he's going to deal with this matter of philosophy, as we have indicated. Enticing words and philosophy... The thing that is enticing so many young preachers today, in most of our seminaries, philosophy and psychology has been substituted for the Bible. And I'm amazed how little some of these boys, even with Ph.D. degrees, who come out of seminaries, how little they know about the Bible. Now, they know all about Bultmann. They know about Kant. They know about Plato. But they don't seem to know very much about the Word of God. And that is the great problem actually today. Now, there was a danger of that in Colossians. And I think that's what actually killed not only the church of the Colossians, but actually the one in Laodicea. That was the weakest church of the seven, you know, and in the worst spiritual condition. And yet they thought they were better off. It was a wealthy city. Laodicea was, and so was Colossae. Very wealthy place, a place of affluence. And they boasted of their wealth. They boasted of their knowledge there. And that's always a grave danger, you see. But now, if we should only learn, friends, that in whom, in Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, you're going to get all you need in Christ. Oh, if we'd only learn that. And he is the one today. The church is the mystery. And Christ is the mystery. That is, the church. And we're told here that he is the reservoir of all knowledge. In the science building where I went to college, there was a motto on the bulletin board that was there the whole time I was in college. And it made a great impression on me. I'm afraid I'll know more about it than I did about any of the sciences I studied there. And it was this little motto, next to knowing is knowing where to find out. And I love that. 
Next to knowing is knowing where to find out. Well, friends, I don't know everything, and I'm sure many of you have discovered that by now, but I know where to find out because I know somebody who does. Christ has been made unto us wisdom, and we need to rest in that. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him, and how wonderful this is. Now he begins to move down into this area where he's going to deal with this subject here. First, it'll be enticing words here, beginning now with verse 4. He says, "...and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words." Now, the word beguile here means to victimize you. That means oratory, our sweet talk. I heard of a theologian. He's great at using big words and also of trying to be very deep. And he is very deep. I heard this little story about him that he was speaking to a group. There's a man standing on the outside of the group, and another man walked up. And he'd been talking now 30 minutes. So this man that walked up said to the man standing there, says, what's he talking about? And the fellow says, well, he hadn't said yet. Well, to tell the truth, he never would say. And you never would know really what he's talking about. I heard of a dear lady that attends a certain church. And she says, oh, I just love to go there because the preacher uses such flowery language. And it just makes me feel so good all over. That's the danger today. A great many people love this pretense toward intellectuality among preachers and not giving the simple word of God. The idea today to try to appear to be very intellectual. And I know something about that because when I started in the ministry, you see, I had been exposed to liberalism. I went to a liberal college. And when I say liberal, I mean liberal. And that's all I knew at that time. I was not grounded in the Word at all, although I'd had a wonderful pastor. But I wasn't grounded in the Word. And I wanted to be an intellectual preacher. I thought that would be great. But thank God that was knocked out of me shortly after I even was in college. To teach and give out the Word of God. Now he says, beware of this sort of thing. They'll beguile you with enticing words, and they'll victimize you. And the number of people that follow certain individuals, they don't follow the Word of God, they follow the individual. And it's like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. He starts playing, and they start following. Now he goes on to say here, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, at this time, the word that was coming to Paul was that this church was standing. And he says, I beheld your order. Now, that order is a military term, and it means to stand shoulder to shoulder. And that's what believers ought to be doing, standing shoulder to shoulder. But today, they're not all doing that. They're trying to undermine another believer, are trying to maybe take advantage in some way. Oh, if we could only get back to this. And then the word steadfastness 
That means a solid front. It means to be immovable. And actually, the word here is stereotype. That's opposed to movable type. And Paul speaks about being unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's what he's talking about. This church here at Colossae at this time had that reputation, and Paul wanted them to continue like that and not be led away by the oratory of some. Now we are told here, and he moves on, he says, "...as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him." Now that's a very wonderful statement to begin, if you'll notice, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I don't like the word commitment today at all. I am hearing a great deal. In fact, I have a letter from some man that tells me I'm not saved. He's praying I'll be saved because he said, I very frankly admit that I am not perfect, that I do not keep even all the Ten Commandments. And he says that I'm not saved until I do. Well, what does it really mean to be saved? It means to receive a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now that you received him, now walk in him. And that, my friend, is a very wonderful thing. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, you see today. Learn to walk. Through this life, and walking is not a balloon ascension. A great many people think the Christian life is some great overwhelming experience, and you take off like a rocket going out into space. Well, that's not where you live the Christian life. It's in your home, in the office, in the schoolroom, on the street. And the way you get around is walk. And you're to walk in Christ today. All that you and I might be joined to him like that. Then he goes on to say, rooted and built up in him. That's a very interesting expression. Rooted, that means like a tree. That's a living thing. And built up as a house. And that's not a living thing, but has a tremendous foundation. And that foundation, Paul tells us elsewhere, is Jesus Christ. Now, as you've received the Lord Jesus, walk in him. Doing what? Rooted. That means drawing your life from him as a tree and then and built on him. Your faith that rests upon him, built up and in the faith, is by your faith, I think would be the proper thing. It means by which you and I lay hold of Christ today. Now we come 8 through 13, the danger philosophy. Verse 8, beware. Now, he says, that means look out. Stop looking, lest lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, if you follow down the story of philosophy, beginning with Plato and coming on down, and even following many of the church fathers, you will find that none of them, including Kant and and Locke, and even Bultmann right now, he seems to be the craze with some of these theologians, none of them have a high view of the inspiration of the Word of God. In other words, they're looking for an answer to the problems of life. Well, you don't find it in philosophy. 
Now, a true philosopher is a seeker after the truth. But you see, Christ is the answer. And that expression, Christ is the answer, I always wish they'd ask the question if they're going to say Christ is the answer. He's the answer to philosophy. He's been made us wisdom. Now, false philosophy today, though, it's like a blind man looking in a dark room for a black cat that isn't there. That is the hunt of philosophy today. He asks us to beware of that. Now, as we have said in this chapter, Paul warns the Colossians of five errors that endangered them, and it's still a danger to the church, to the believer today. One is enticing words. It's very easy to be carried away by a man who's an orator, but who does not preach or teach the Word of God. And now in this section, he's dealing with philosophy. Next, we'll see legality and then mysticism and asceticism. And we have all of them today, just as they had it in Paul's day and as it was in the Colossian church, and finally destroyed the testimony of that witness in that area of the world where the gospel had gone out so mightily and had won so many to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now we have here, he speaks of the tradition of man. That's quite interesting. This is the thing, you remember, that the Lord Jesus condemned the religious rulers for in his day, that they taught the tradition of man rather than the Word of God. And that, very frankly, is one of the things that has turned us to teach the total Word of God, because it's so easy for all of us to lift out some peculiar interpretation that we have of a particular passage and ride it as a hobby. Now, I believe in prophecy, but there's more in the Word of God than prophecy. Now, there are a great many that just dwell upon the Keswick message, the Christian life. That's in there. But there's more in there than that. And that's one reason I think today that we ought to study the total Word of God. Not just part of it, but the total Word of God. And friends, I believe it's very important in our day that we put an emphasis at that particular place, that we take the total Word of God. Then he mentions here the rudiments. That is a very interesting word, stoicheon. It's actually that which is basic, the ABCs. And there's so many folk that actually build their system of Christian living on some worldly system that seems so simple. But we don't base it on philosophy. It's to be based on Christ. Now he comes to that. And not after Christ, for in him, he says, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is a marvelous verse. For in him dwelleth all the pleroma. And this is a clear-cut statement here of the deity of Christ. You couldn't have it put in a stronger form than we have it here. In him dwelleth all the fullness, not just 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent, but a hundred percent. Now he says, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, you're complete. Actually, this is a nautical term, and you could translate it like this in a very vivid way. You are ready for the voyage of life in him. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? You're ready for the voyage of life in Christ. 
and whatever you need for the voyage of life. Now, that is where we say Christ is the answer. What's your question? What is it you need today? Are you carried away by philosophy? Then turn to Christ. Are you carried away today by enticing words? Turn to Christ. And we're going to see later on that a great many people are carried away by the little systems of today. Now, he goes on to say here in verse 11, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Now, he says to get rid of that which is outward, and the real circumcision is the new birth. Circumcision, Paul says in Galatians, is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But a new creation, it's when you and I come to Christ and trust Him as our Savior, and we rest in Him. How important that is. Actually, it's identification with Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead. It was Lord Lyndhurst who made this statement. He was the great Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, one of the sharpest legal minds, I suppose, of all time. He made the statement, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. The historical fact of the resurrection of Christ is that you and I, when he died, he took your place and my place when he was raised we were raised in him, and we're joined today to a living Christ. Oh, my friend, how important that is for us to see today that we are joined to a living Savior. Friends, this is so important that you will forgive me, I trust, if I bear down on this for just a few moments here, because there is so much today that parallels this type of thing. Paul is saying here, don't let any man spoil you through vain philosophy. And that the important thing is to keep in mind that it's not a ceremony that's been performed on the outside, but it's a question of whether you have been born again, whether you have really know Christ as your Savior. And if you do, we're told here that a Christian life is putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That is, by your identification with Christ. You are buried with him in baptism, and that is, I think, identification with him. That's what water baptism does. You're buried with him, wherein also you're risen with him. Now you're joined to the living Christ through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now, the operation of God here. This is done only by the power of God, friends. It's not some philosophy. It's not some gimmick. It's not some little system. It's not taking some little course that's going to enable you to live for God at all. And as he says here in verse 13, "...and you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." 
Now, that's a wonderful statement. It's not the improvement of the old nature, but the impartation of a new nature. Now, Paul is obviously dealing with two systems that were very popular in his day of Greek philosophy. And they were diametrically opposed to each other, but they both came out the same end of the horn. And one is Stoicism, and the other is Epicureanism. Now, the Stoic taught you're to live nobly, and death cannot matter. Hold your appetite in check. Become indifferent to changing conditions. Be not uplifted by good fortune or cast down by adversity. Man is more than circumstances. The soul is greater than the universe. Now, that's a brave philosophy, you see. But how are you doing with it? It's like these people that try to tell you today, I live by the Sermon on the Mount, and they're four miles from it. And those are country miles, too, by the way. Now, Epicureanism said, well, all is uncertain. We know not whence we came. We know not whether we go. We only know that after a brief life, we disappear from this scene, and it's vain to deny ourselves any present joy in view of the possible future ill. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, the very interesting thing is that these two systems are tempting to deal with the flesh. That is, that old nature that you and I have, not the meat on the bones, but the old nature that works through our bodies, these old habits that we've got, old desires, old testings, temptations, and all of that. The old nature works through that. Now, how are we going to control that? Well, there are all kinds of little gimmicks and systems that are set before us today. And I know people that have been to Bible conferences where the Christian life is taught, and they've got a drawer at home filled with notebooks telling you how to live the Christian life. But they're not doing so well with it. Why? Because of this one important thing that we need to recognize here. And Paul says here that you are joined today to the living Christ. Now, if you are joined to him, my friend, you're going to live like that. How close are you to him today? Do you walk with him? Do you turn to him in all the emergencies of this life? Is he the one that's the very center of your life? Now, let's move on here because this is all very important. We come now to a new era today, and that is legality, the legal system. And he says here, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And the whole thing here now is for philosophy and legality both, is to come to the Word of God and in it to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A glory gilds the sacred page, majestic like the sun. It sheds a light on every age. It gives, but borrows none. Now, we come here to this very wonderful section where we're told, "...blotting out the handwriting of ordinances." Now, what is he talking about here when he talks about blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us? This old flesh of ours that's been 
condemned. Christ, when he died, he died for you and me, paying the penalty for our sin and your sin. Because, you see, when the Lord Jesus died, the important thing to note is that they wrote above him, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, he was being publicly executed because of the fact that he had led rebellion according to his accusers, which, of course, was not true. But that was the charge against him. And the people read that, and they understood because he was being disloyal to Caesar and that he'd made himself a king. But when God looked upon that cross, that cross was an altar on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. But God saw another inscription there, high above the one that men wrote there. We are told here, do you notice, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What did God write on that cross? He wrote the ordinances. He wrote ten words, ten commandments. He wrote a law that I cannot keep, and I'm guilty of breaking it. And when he died there, he died there not because he broke it. He was sinless, but because I broke it, because I'm a sinner, and because you are, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the picture that you have here. Therefore, my friend, if God has saved you today and has raised you from the dead and joined you to a living Christ, why are you going back to a law that you couldn't keep? And you can't keep even today in your own power and your own strength. You see, the law was given to discipline the old nature. And now the believer's given a new nature. And the law, therefore, has been removed as a way of life, per se, by the cross of Christ. A man came to me once, and he said, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you'll show me where the Sabbath day's been changed. I said, well, it hasn't been changed. Saturday is Saturday, and it's the seventh day. It's the Sabbath day. I know the calendar's been adjusted, and we could be off a few days, but... I'm not even arguing that point with anyone. I'm just saying that the seventh day is, that's the Sabbath day. Then he says to me with a gleam in his eye, why don't you keep it if it hasn't been changed? I says, well, it hasn't been changed, but I've been changed. I'm given a new nature now. I'm joined to Christ, and I'm going to try to please him and live for him. That's the important thing today, friends, and that, may I say, that is the all-important thing in this day in which we live. Now, let me drop down here, and it says, verse 15, "...and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days." My friend, you can't judge us in respect to those things. Why? Because now we come here to this thing that I think is tremendous, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, a believer is not to observe ordinances that are only ritual and liturgical. They have no present value. Now, what God gave them, that's the point. God gave them then what's happened. 
Well, even at best, back in the Old Testament, Paul says here they were a shadow of things to come. That's an interesting word, that little word shadow. We get our word photograph from that. You see, these back in the Old Testament, they were a negative and just a picture. And all of the rituals of the law were just pictures of Christ. And now that Christ has come, we have the reality. Why go back and look at a picture? I remember during World War II, I had joined together two of our wonderful young people right here in Pasadena when I was pastor. And with so many of those wonderful young people at that time, some of them went to the war, and some of those young men gave their lives. But this young couple, when he was taken into the service and he went overseas, she carried around with her in the biggest pocketbook I've ever seen, and I've seen some big ones. She carried a photograph, and it's the biggest photograph I've ever seen for anybody to carry around. Generally, people carry a little bitty picture, you know, in your pocketbook. Not that girl. She carried one, my friend, that could have hung on the side of the wall. And she was everlastingly drawing it out, showing it to you. And between me and you, he was not what I'd call a handsome boy. He was a wonderful boy, but he wasn't handsome. And she'd look at it and she'd say, isn't he handsome? <laughs> and then the day came, the war was over, and he was coming back to Seattle, Washington. She went all the way up there to meet him. Now, what do you think she did when she saw him coming down the gangplank? Hadn't seen him in a couple of years. What do you think she did? I'll tell you what she did. She got out that picture and looked at it and said, isn't he wonderful? Well, no, friend, she didn't do that. I don't think she even had the picture with her. She saw him, and when she saw him, she didn't need a picture. And she threw arms around him. Oh, today, if a lot of us folk would cut out all of this carrying around a picture today and going through the little gimmicks and jumping through little hooks and going to this little organization and that. And my friend, what's it done for us? I don't think it's done very much for us. Now let's move on down here because now we come to this thing that's known as mysticism. Let no man beguile you of your reward and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body but joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together and creature with the increase of God. Now here's another angle in which they go off. Paul here is condemning the Gnostics who made a pretense of wisdom. And there are a great many folk today, they assume a pious superiority. They're what I call spiritual snobs. And generally, they're about as ignorant of the Bible, it's been my experience, as any. But they assume that pious and intruding into those things which you have not seen. That's a pretense. That's putting on, acting like you've got something that you don't really have. Now, not holding the head means that they have a loose relationship to Christ. In other words, their head's not screwed on as it should be, by the way. Now, will you notice, we come to the last, which is asceticism. And here in 20 to 23, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not? which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of man, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will-worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now, 
Here you have something that I think very candidly is a very terrible thing today. These are people who follow some passing fad in the church. They, a few years ago, the women couldn't use lipstick. Some of them sure looked horrible. And a girl came to me at that time and she said, Do you think that's all right to use lipstick? I was teaching in a school where they didn't permit it. And I said to her, I said, there are a lot of these folk around here to look better if they used a little lipstick. And I said, God wants us to look the best that we can, even with what we got to work with. We ought to do the best we can with it. That is a pride, as juveniles put it, the pride that apes humility, pretending to, I deny myself and I don't do these things and just look at me. I'm really sprouting wings and I shine my halo every morning. My friend, that is an asceticism today that's no good. God wants you to rejoice in Him. And Christ wants you to be close to Him. And if you're going to walk with Him, friends, you're going to have a good time. So until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.